Hello and welcome to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward, and I'm joined today by Mark Grady from InDigital. Welcome, Mark. Howdy. Thanks for joining us. For those who don't know you, perhaps you could start by sharing a little about yourself and the multiple roles that you hold. Well, <laughs> it's been an interesting career. I've been in the telecom industry, independent telecom industry for 39 years. I work for an independent telephone company in northern Indiana, New Paris Telephone, and it has uh, gotten a very diversified portfolio of services. We uh, got in the fiber business very early here, and that led to getting in the fiber business on a statewide basis through Intelligent Fiber Network, which recently was acquired by Zayo. And about that same time, we started a CLEC in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, as part of uh, kind of an outgrowth of some PCS licenses that we had from the Spectrum auctions back in the day. And uh, that morphed into doing a lot of contract work for some of the wireless carriers. And that kind of morphed then into realizing that 911 had not really been modernized since the first system was done in, in the 80s and the first system mm -hmm. I did in 1983, which was kind of a prehistoric thing by comparison. And so about 2003, the state of Indiana asked us what we would do to modernize 911 service for wireless for the state. We responded by saying we'd convert it all to IP because that's what's where the world is headed in telecom. And uh, we were the only folks who said that at the time. It was years ahead of, of the rest of the industry really even coming around to that. They decided to take a chance on us and gave us a contract to start to modernize service, which we did. And uh, we're now on about, uh, although we number them by the years, kind of like uh, Windows volumes, but we uh, are on about our sixth generation of IP service here in Indiana. We also provide statewide service through a business partner for most of Michigan, quite a bit of Illinois, Kentucky, parts of Ohio, Arkansas, I'm sorry, not Arkansas, Alabama, excuse me, the New England states, Vermont and New England, big chunks of Florida. And then the products that we make, which are software-based, we license those to other 911 system service providers, and those provide service in about 29 of the 50 U.S. states. So it's a pretty big company now by anyone's guess. That's quite a crazy kind of story to go it from is. to go from something so normal and regular as an ILEC in a small town, and then just suddenly just by seeing the opportunities that develop to grow to you know that scale is quite remarkable. Well, I think New Paris has always been an interesting company while I've been here, and we've got a lot of things with serial number one through three on them. We were a very early Meta switch customer, and uh, it replaced a 5ESS that uh, went in in order to provide ISDN service. You know, it's not for people who might know me, it probably doesn't seem that unusual, but it, it, it is an interesting. We now have employees in 19 different states and we do a lot of our software development in Madrid, Spain. And you don't think about a small telco that's a community and employee owned being quite that diversified. But obviously what we used to do isn't what we're doing today or what we're going to do tomorrow. So the opportunity was there to, you know, improve things. And we've saved countless of thousands of lives people over the years by providing more reliable, better service and some innovative technologies, non-voice communication, among other things. And so it's been a very rewarding business development, very much so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Most of the work we've done together has been on the the more traditional side of the world. But for today, I wanted to talk about the 911 stuff because I think that's the the more unusual, the more interesting piece. Um, and maybe we could start by stepping back to before your innovations, moving things to IP and the crazy idea that that was. And maybe explain for people how 911 has traditionally worked or even just what a 911 call does in the traditional world that is above and beyond just a regular phone call? How how is it different to just a regular call? It's a very interesting thing. You know, when basic 911 came about, we launched that service on an ITT Pentaconda switch in 1971. And basically, it was just a digit translation scheme. The customer dialed that digit, those three digits, and the switch said, wait a minute, I have a route for that. And it went to a seven-digit local number, and that was called basic 911. In our case, it went to volunteer fire department because that was the bulk of the 911 calls at the time and it rang 20 or 30 volunteer firemen's home phone numbers simultaneously and they the first one that answered started the conversation and others just joined a, a massively big conference bridge it was a part of the switch and then they they drove the fire truck the ambulance later uh, whatever and and if it was for police emergency they would tell the caller this is the seven digit number and they'd have to hang up and that number. We deployed a digital switch early in the fall of 81, Northern Telecom DMS-10. And when that went online in 82, it, it seemed obvious that there would be a better way of doing things. And, and that's kind of where I think most people, what they have today kind of matches that from the standpoint that we had operator trunks that used common automated, automated message accounting, CAMA. Mm-hmm. And those multi-frequency trunks could then send the telephone number of the calling party. And you could decode that by decoding the, the multi-frequency digits and then query a database and find out where was the subscriber, where did they live, what was their physical address. And so that those early systems, that's what they did. They used a type of, of operator trunk that when the subscriber made that call, the MF tones were sent, they were decoded at the far end, and they were typically an eight-digit cadence of calls. It was one digit to indicate the area code and then the seven digits of the of the phone number. And then a computer, a mini computer, looked up the number and in 512 characters, ASCII characters, provided the information that the call taker needed to render emergency service. And that really continued on through the 80s and up into the late 80s and early 90s when mobile telephone service came about, when cellular came about. By the time cellular arrived in the mid-80s to late early 90s, it was working in kind of the same way. There was a telephone number, a non-dialable number that was associated with a, a tower, with a cell tower or a sector on a tower. Mm-hmm. And that number would be presented for query. And then there was a, uh, several companies who had developed methods of then getting the location, the approximate location of the handset device from the mobile switch. Initially, it was just the callback number. That was called phase one. Phase zero was you just found out where the tower was, and then you had to guess where the caller was from there. But phase one gave the callback number, so you could call them back. But phase two, which came about in the mid-90s, probably 93 to 96, that gave the location of the caller. And that was really as far as the industry advanced. So, you know, you leap forward from 96 into 2005 or so, and when you think, well, we're still setting up MF calls with that long 10 or some cases 20-digit MF tone call cadence, it wasn't uncommon in some cases for that call to take 20 to 30 seconds to be set up. It was like an operator call back in the 40s. And that is a lot of time 
in an emergency if someone's having a a medical condition or in an accident or a fire to, to get the call done and set up and answered. And then even then, that may not have went to quite the right place and it might need to be transferred. There was just a lot of things that could really dramatically be improved by the use of IP and SIP. And that's, that's kind of where we evolved to today. And what's kind of astonishing, what you described there as the early 80s setup for Wireline is, in my experience, mostly what's still done today for it a is. lot of smaller rural telcos. And not just small rural telcos. There are a lot of large urban centers that still... The introduction of SS7 certainly speeded up the call processing because then you could get those digits conveyed faster than you could with MF CAMA. But the call-taking systems at the end, they're still getting CAMA in many, many jurisdictions today across the U.S. There's, I think there's about 11 or 12 states that have got some kind of IP network. But for the rest of them, the multi-frequency CAMA is still very common. And we just were sort of astonished when you think about how much that's taking. If you've ever heard a CAMA background call on a long distance call prior to SS7 for the older folks that are listening to this, that takes a while for those digits to get spit out. Yep. Yeah, we used to, for troubleshooting purposes, we'd kind of watch them in real time yes. on our little screen there to make sure everything was working properly. And yeah, you, it's not instantaneous. You can certainly see them. Well, and you have perfect pitch, so you could probably decode those MF tones as they went by and didn't know what they were before they even came up on the display. So Maybe my wife has perfect pitch. Me, me not so much. But <laughs> I know someone does. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, certainly I've listened to fax tones when troubleshooting fax and tried to figure out what was going on based on listening to the fax tones, which is not a very exact science. No, but it's oftentimes good enough, as we know. Yes, yes, indeed. All right, so... The state of things hasn't really moved on much. With the with Next Gen 911, apart from the speed, which you mentioned, the getting the call set up, what other advantages are there to the more advanced P-based uh, systems that InDigital now offers? Well, I think the biggest one really is the ability to, for an agency that gets a call to transfer it to another location, to another center, to another public safety answering point. That's the term we use, PSAP. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, if let's say there were some states, but many, many didn't, you might have, AT&T might have been a system service provider. GTE might have been one back in the day. The independence might have been. And those systems were typically not interconnected together. So as the American public became more mobile and cell, cell devices and mobile devices became more common, it, it's not uncommon for the call to go be processed by one provider go to a PSAP, go to a center, I have one center, and then it, that's not the right one. And they, they don't have a way to transfer it to the other location. Hmm. What we have today is the ability for an agency to transfer a call to any other agency and any other system that you operate in any other state. And so there's the ability to get that call very quickly moved with location. That's the same, one of the big advantages. The second one, obviously, is if the incoming connections, even from the legacy switches or SS7, you've got a call setup time now that's well below two or three seconds tops. And so the call by the agencies getting answered, the, the industry goal is 95% of all calls answered within five seconds. When you think about that compared to a 20, 25 second setup for a call, that's a big improvement in, in how quickly things are going to get, help's going to be rendered and someone's going to be sent. The other big advantage that we have is that now with the advent of the smartphone or the feature phone, well, I should say an Apple iPhone or an Android device, mm -hmm. the, that has a GPS chip in it. It knows its location at all times. It's kind of, you know, that's the benchmark in the industry. Well, I, 
I can have the pizza driver know where I'm at, or I can have Uber know where I'm going, but 911 doesn't know. And we make sure that that doesn't happen. And and working with the providers of those devices and the networks that they operate, it's very common now that for a lot of our customers, they're getting that location information, not just from the legacy source, from the the mobile provider switch and their databases, you know, the industry standard and, and relied upon. But then within a few seconds, we're getting it from the actual device and presenting that information as well. So now you're really down to what the goal of the industry is, and that is a dispatchable address. When the call taker has ascertained what the emergency is, and that goes out electronically using systems called computer-aided dispatch to the patrol car or the fire truck or the fire station, they know exactly where they're going. And then that gets plotted in their their mapping systems, their uh, GPS systems that are in their cars that tell them exactly how to get there, where the point of entry is, what you know, if it's a if it's a factory or a large business, what door to go to in some cases for access. So it's just the whole process is about how do you get the most accurate location out to the first responder so they can get to where the person is that needs help. What's the like difference in quality, if you like, for the location with the legacy pre-smartphone, you know, cell tower system of identifying the location versus the GPS from the phone itself? The GPS from the phone itself is generally very reliable. Now there are urban settings where you know you you're in a multi-story building and and there's the elevation issue, which is now something that the industry is working on. And there's always the case where the phone has been outside and now it's went inside and there's no GPS signal available and it's not there's no access to the satellites. And so it still has the stored location outside. But those are kind of, you know, what I'll call a corner case. It's unusual that those happen. The phones are now sophisticated enough and there are third-party providers out there that we use that when you go in a, a location, that phone has awareness. You know, the ideal is a Bluetooth transponder, which some colleges and federal uh, locations have, but Wi-Fi, even the Wi-Fi access points. You know, if you think about that, when you go in a modern retailer, such as Target, you know, and you open the Target app, it can guide you to the aisle that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, my, my favorite story of that is we were doing quite a bit of indoor testing when Target started to introduce those services. And we had one of the PSAP directors with us and there was a TV news crew involved. And we were in the store and we were making a number of test calls on different providers phones inside the store and we were trying to get to a quiet place in the store that we could make a 911 call obviously not arouse suspicion of the other shoppers or those sorts of things that the store manager knew we were there 911 director said we need to get somewhere else i don't want my wife to see us in the lingerie department while we're making these test calls on the news and it was accurate enough to know within the store where you were inside a 50,000 square foot store so that has been a big help first responders to know where the call is coming from yep Yep, absolutely. So it seems like something in the operating system on the phones is kind of knows that it's a 911 call and is sending that information. It is. Yes, the phone goes into what's called emergency mode. And if you've ever made a 911 call with your iPhone or with your Android device, you know, it kind of assumes a different personality at that point. The phone, in many cases, can then not make another call. It cannot get another text message. You can't, you know, swipe over to iTunes and decide to download a new game to play while you're waiting on the ambulance to arrive. And so it takes some time then before the system kind of releases that phone to go back into normal operation. And uh, there's a couple reasons for that. When the, a member of the public makes a 911 call, they're really surrendering a certain number of their rights to privacy, including location information, because it's essential mm-hmm. to rendering service. And so the phones have really gotten 
very, very sophisticated. There was a, a couple of years ago, there was an LG phone that uh, came out and for whatever reason, the software engineers decided that it would be a good idea if the phone were to, to make a sound when you had called 911. And their goal was their, their phones at that point, they were dialing 911 in people's pockets. You could push the uh, one key on the phone and it would make a 911 call automatically. And, the, and that became kind of a problem for the industry because we were getting a lot of these pocket dial calls. And so the phone would make a loud noise. Well, that really doesn't work if you're hiding in your house from an intruder and you're under the bed and then your phone is making this really loud noise. That's a bad thing. So <laughs> there's kind of a learning curve for all of these things. One of the other things that we've really been a tremendous innovator on is non-voice communication, text to 911. And the systems that we operate are bi-directional, meaning that the public can make a text call to a text message to the 911 center that they answer, or the 911 center can make a text, start a text dialogue back to the caller. And so it's been very useful for this that condition I described, a pocket dial. You put your phone in your pocket, it's unlocked, it's called 911. You don't know what to do. You think, well, I got to hang up on this real quickly. Actually, the, the protocol is do not talk to the person at the other end and say, this is not an emergency. I inadvertently dialed. But when you don't do that, and many people, that's their initial reaction was to get this thing turned off, then they just send a text back. What we found is that when the 911 agency text back and said, do you have an emergency? 80% of the time, people will answer that text. They're just incented to do that because that's just human condition today. If they were to call them, even if we send the digits 911 as the caller ID, they just won't answer because they think, oh, well, you know, something's going to happen. And for a lot of agencies, their protocol for that is they send a unit to check on you to make sure that you're okay. Well, that's a tremendous waste of resources in, in terms of man hours and, and drive time and all those things. So it's been a tremendous money saver for a lot of the agencies to to have that feature available. Yeah, it's fascinating and uh, insight into people's psyche. You know, I, I can totally imagine accidentally dialing down on one in my pocket and then panicking, like hit the hit the stop button before before it goes through. And then, of course, if they call back, you're like, yeah. "Well, I, I didn't mean to. I don't want to talk to them." But you, you feel like you're you're in trouble. So I think the text message thing is great, and I can see how that would help. And the other the other part of the population that really benefits from non voice are those that are speaking and hearing impaired. Mm. You know, without that, they've they've got to call a friend or they have to go through someone relay service to get help. And now with text messaging, they can directly communicate just as efficiently as effectively. And and there's a new protocol that we're starting to get. We're getting closer to deployment of that. We're kind of waiting on the wireless carriers. They always it's a cost center for them, so they're not too eager about getting things done. But they've they've really pushed at the FCC for a protocol called real-time text. Mm -hmm. And if you can imagine in the old days when you had, you know, maybe an instant messaging service that you used and you see what the other person is typing as you're typing, real-time text works like that. And it's very conversational in nature. And for this, someone who's speaking or hearing impaired, it's very fluid. The, the flow of information is like a closed caption uh, cell phone call or a TV show. And it, that I think that'll be another big breakthrough for that community to really have improved access to emergency services. Yep, absolutely. That makes sense. So what is the status of the rollout of you know these more advanced features? It sounds like InDigital is offering service in a variety of places, but kind of nationwide, you know, what, what level of rollout are we at? And also what's driving that? Is this federal regulation? Is it state by state? It's state by state. And the most successful ones are where there's a state program that oversees 911 and it's, it's generally independent of 
kind of state government. A lot of these we call them, you know, quasi-governmental entities. And they have a group made up of governance for them that is fairly diverse. It includes the piece of the 911 call centers themselves, the public, you know, usually an advocacy person for those with speaking and hearing uh, impairments. A lot of the states have really leaps and bounds have moved forward very quickly. And, you know, of course, the other issue is funding because most of the states today, the funding is through a small surcharge that can range from, you know, 10 or 15 cents to in Chicago, I think it's like six bucks for a surcharge for access to 911. So, you know, the Chicago is more of an outlier, but typically it's about a buck a month or so for that. And that funding then gets collected and administered by these successful state programs. And and we've been very fortunate that we've had been able to do work for some of them. They're, they're very good. And what happens in that then is that there is the second big political goal of the program and of the service. You have a uniform level of service statewide. So it doesn't make any difference if you're in a large metropolitan area, such as Indianapolis, or you're in a smaller town like BV, Indiana, with a very low population, the quality of service that you're getting is going to be completely consistent across both of those. And there's funding that's available for training and the state program does training. Alabama, for example, is probably one of the best trained. Every call taker knows how to tell somebody how to deliver a baby, how to do CPR, how to find an AED, how to get the paddles out. It's really the better state programs in the country are really a wonder of what they have provided in terms of improvements in public safety. And, you know, some of them have had some very interesting goals, reducing death by heart attack by X percent a year. And when you think about what that takes to make that happen, it's just really an incredible thing. Yeah. When you do see the disparity between different parts of the state in terms of the quality of service, is it that rural areas tend to be lagging behind urban areas or is it, or I could imagine it going both ways? Yeah, it does. And often not in ways that you might expect. When there's inequalities in the delivery of 911 service, it typically is because it's a training issue, number one. And these are not high paid positions. I mean, you might, you know, you might think, well, I'm going to call a person that's going to, I'm putting my life literally on the line and they're going to, they're the only person right now that can help me. And in some of the states, those are not high paying jobs. Those are maybe only $35,000 a year, 30 or $35,000 a year jobs. In other states, the funding is there, you know, to have more better trained people and, and a higher quality people. The big problem with all of that is, of course, is that there's quite a bit of turnover in that because it is an extremely difficult job. I mean, you know, you think about what's involved in that, that you're taking a call from someone who's just cranked up on meth and, and half crazy, or they've been shot, or they and there's no closure in anything that happens there. That call taker takes that call and they take they follow the protocol that's established by the local jurisdiction of the state, they send an ambulance, they send a fire truck, and then that they're done. The call has ended. They may never know the outcome. And it's a very stressful job. And there's a lot of turnover in that. There are people who have made a career of it and they're extremely good at it. And there are other people who they maybe realize till they get through the, in some cases, the six to eight weeks of training that's required by a state or by the jurisdiction. And realize I can't do this. I just said it's just too much. It, it is a very stressful job. Yeah, I can't begin to imagine. I mean, one of, yeah. one of the things from a job satisfaction point of view, one of the things I love about consulting is the fairly quick turnaround between somebody contacts us with a problem, we help them solve the problem, 
the problem is solved. They are happy. They are appreciative of our work. Right. And that's a great thing for me. I really enjoy that. Value it. But in this case, somebody contacts you with a horrendous life-threatening problem. Yes. And you don't even know if it got solved. Never mind. Get any gratitude. It's so, so difficult. It's just that we do a lot of feedback for our customers. We have state, we have people in each in the states that we serve for. So let's say we have market managers there and they have training coordinators and other folks do that. And one of their jobs is to identify when you have these horrendous events. We just had one the other day. There was a shooting in a manufacturing plant in Alabama. And that means those call takers that were there, they are wiped out. They are traumatized. I mean, somebody they know, maybe even a family member was just killed. And so we have put in place these arrangements through the guidance from one of the national associations called TURT. And so we have people who work at maybe in an adjacent county or on, and sometimes on a statewide basis. They'll literally, they'll get up with no notice, get in their car, and they'll drive to that location to fill in for those people who just have been had the emotional scarring of that particular incident or will move the calls to another center and then provide backup coverage for them there and these state market managers are highly in tune with what's going on and i think that's one of the big differences for our company media you know we're from a small independent telephone company ourselves if i've got a subscriber that doesn't like the service we're providing and and same thing for your audience they can come into the the office and ask to see me and they're going to get satisfaction i may not but they're going to get satisfaction and you just you know that kind of accountability is a is a very critical thing you just don't have that from some of the larger providers, some of our competitors. That's just not how they think about how things are going to be done. So it's very interesting. There's a lot of parallels, I think, to the to the good that the independent telephone industry does uh, to what we do with 911. I can. There's a lot of parallels there. Yep. So let's bring this back to the independent telephone industry and the impact that these advances in 911 technology have on them. As we mentioned earlier. Many of our clients are still using camo trunks for 911, and some of them have got SS7, but fundamentally it's still doing the same thing. It's sending the the caller ID to the PSAP, and that's kind of it. As their state deploys next-gen 911, what changes might they see? What uh, changes might they need to implement in their networks? Well, I think the number one thing is, you know, for the states where we operate, obviously we have a vision of what that's going to look like. And it's what it's going to look like is that telco is going to connect directly to the emergency service internetwork, ESINet. And so we're going to be in touch with them and say, we know that you have a soft switch now, whether that's a, a ribbon or that's a taqua or that's a meta switch. Hopefully it is. And we're going to establish a redundant IP connection to you and a failover of a toll-free number, an e-header number, and you're going to change the translations and the connection method in your switch, and we want you to get the call to us as fast as you can. And the method by which you provide the location of that fixed caller, that may change. You may not be sending it to the Bell Company or Frontier or Embark or whoever. You're going to put it directly into the database that's used statewide. Uh, The second issue is that as the switch providers get more and more sophisticated and they find better and better ways to make 911 work at the switch level. A lot of that location information is either going to be put in to the billing system and then made accessible by the meta switch or it's going to be put directly in the meta switch. They may have all of the subscriber location information in the meta and it's going to transmit that information directly from there. That gets us, you know, the best possible service address. The issue is that you can 
a bad address, a bad civic address can cause a lot of problems for the 911 system. If, you know, you put in your address of uh, 1321 Westville Vista and there's no street address with that name, then there's going to be a problem. And so we have put in place some mechanisms where the subscriber, the, the end user, they can call a test number and find out what address 911 is going to get when they make a call. So effectively, they're going to test their 911 service without making a real call. And in some cases, they, the authority says, just dial 911 and we'll tell you what we got. And I think those are the things that are, that are going to be the big change. What we find as we go through a lot of these conversions is that there might be subscribers that have been a telco subscriber for maybe 50, 60 years. And in the change of the database ownership, through all of the mergers and acquisitions and things that have happened with Frontier and Windstream and Embark, and somehow those numbers have dropped out and that subscriber maybe has not made a 911 call. And then they make one because, you know, something's happened and there's no address. And the accuracy, I should say, of some of the these legacy 911 databases that everybody just assumes are working great, they may only be 80, maybe 90%. And if you're in that last 10 or 15%, you've got a problem when you make a call and it doesn't work. Yeah. It's astonishing that in this day and age, it fundamentally comes down to the quality of a database and the fact that it's, to the extent to which it's synchronized and accurate and consistent between different databases. Yeah. And a lot of the small telcos, they would never think about going, and it would be difficult for them to do, quite frankly. It would be hard for them to go to the provider and say, well, send me an extract of your database. I want to mash that up with my billing system and see what I've got. And as the number of fixed subscribers in some cases, as that keeps coming down and down and down, the ones that are left are the ones that are most at risk. And that's why we're seeing you know, the quality index of the 9-1 database go down because nobody's touched that record for maybe 30 years. And they just assume everything's good and, and it turns out it's not. Yep. Yep. Great. I want to circle back and uh, change from 911 briefly but just ask uh, maybe for some management or leadership advice how have you managed to keep on top of everything as you started out running new paris telephone and then in digital kind of took off and the way i view it is that you're wearing multiple different hats and i i struggle to even just wear one hat with a five person company so <laughs> how do you keep on top of all of that well i it's an interesting challenge and i was attracted to this industry by a a family friend who said, you'll never do the same thing twice. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, technology, it's difficult. I mean, I'm not a young man anymore. And, uh, you know, when you think about the pace of how quickly technology is changing, I really, I see a lot of the managers and other small telcos and they really are struggling. And, and, you know, maybe they're only in the telephone business or telephone cable or they've done IPTV or something like that. It's tough. And for me, I'm a very lucky man. I've been able to attract a lot of very good talent. That's the age of, you know, my own kids and these guys that are 30 to 45 years old, they're like work sons to me. And uh, we have a, a great relationship. I think it's really tough for us. I think what made my job a lot easier was we had the benefit. This is an old company. This company was formed in 1901 and we are 7% employee owned by the company, by the employees, and the rest is community ownership. We had have an annual shareholders meeting, and we adopt a resolution that we're, we want to stay locally owned and controlled every year. 
And I think that that really puts your focus pretty close on what it is you're doing. Even as we've diversified and gotten into other things, you're really not that far away from that. I mean, you're living in the community that you serve or you're a part of it, whether it's here or, or in New England, it's kind of the same thing. And so I think, you know, you've got to be constantly recruiting for new talent and trying to find new things to do. And the uncertainty of that, it kind of solves itself. You can research these things and be a part of that, but you have to have the workload distributed enough that it's not just falling on one person. Nobody's irreplaceable. I could be gone tomorrow and, and you know, the show must go on as they say. So. Yep. Yes. Hire smart people and give them responsibility. Exactly. Yes. A good message. Well, Mark, I want to be respectful of your time. I'm very grateful to you for joining me today to have this conversation. It's been fascinating for me and hopefully also for our listeners. If there's anyone listening who wants to kind of learn more about in digital um, or connect with you online, I don't know, through LinkedIn or company websites, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably just give the telephone company a call at uh, New Paris. I have an assistant and she'll get the call to me and we'll go from there. Excellent. Well, thank you again for those listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, then make sure that you're subscribed on iTunes or whatever podcast application you have or through our email list where we do publish notifications of new episodes. And be sure to join us again in a couple of weeks for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much.